Love and grace tend to go hand in hand. And in fact, as I exegete scripture, they're, they're really hard to, to separate. They're kind of entangled together. One is, a, is an active response of the other. You give grace because you love, and when you love, you provide grace, this unmerited favor. And so, when we get to the term of the the law, this is who God is. God reveals our sin. And one more point about the law. We tend to consider today that, that the law is like out to get us. Like the law, I don't know, I picture the law like a police officer with a helmet on a motorcycle. That's the law. That they're like hunting around trying to find what you do wrong. And to instantly point it out. The law is like out to get you. That's not a proper thinking about the law, according to God. I don't mean the law like the laws we live in today. The law of God, his behavior. His behavior is the standard. It is set. It doesn't move. When we sin, the standard doesn't fall down to us. It remains. The law reveals like a coach would reveal a flaw in an athlete. Not to make him feel bad or her feel bad, but to simply bring light to something that is wrong that it may be corrected. In essence, the law determines the distance that you are between righteousness and your sin. Does that make sense? It's the gap. It's not out to get you. It's just out to show you exactly where you are. Grace, on the other hand, is out to get you, but not to hurt you, rather to rescue you. Where the law reveals, grace rescues. And this is where we find ourselves in the midst of what I call the holy pickle of salvation. The holy pickle problem. God is in a pickle. Because God is grace, he is. It's not like he has it, he keeps it in his hip pocket somewhere. He is, in fact, internally, it is him. But God is also the law. And when Adam sinned in the garden, the Bible says that we were in him, we'll talk about that a little bit next week, when one man fell, everyone else fell with him. We are in sin, we are lawless, we fell from the standard because someone broke the law. In God. God has to obey his law. He cannot lie. But God is also full of grace. It's who he is. And so hence the pickle problem. Now some of you in here are thinking of a pickle like, that's a better pickle sound. First service, my pickle sound, meh. This pickle sound was all right. Not that kind of pickle. Throw that pickle away. The pickle I'm talking about, the pickle problem of God is the pickle that we, we would see in a baseball game. Everybody know what the pickle in a baseball game is? I hit, a, I hit a base run. I'm rounding first because I think I can get to second. And as I'm running to, first, or to second base, the ball gets there before I do. And so instead of continuing on to second base where I would be tagged out, I turn around and run back to first base. Meanwhile, as I'm pursuing first base, the second baseman throws the ball to first base faster than I can get there. All of a sudden, I don't want to be at first base anymore because I'll get tagged. And the pickle ensues. The holy pickle problem of God is this, that he sees his beloved, his creation, right? The Bible says that we were created in his image and we were expected to, to operate or behave like God would behave, which is in the perfect letter of the law. But because we misbehaved, we fell from sin, we became lawless, judgment is coming. And like any gracious, loving father of somebody he creates, he wants to rescue by grace those who have fallen in sin. Are you with me? I'm like running laps over here. I'm kind of sweating. When he runs into grace, he realizes that he is hindered by his law. Did you know that God is under his own law? He has to operate his, within his law. He can't act outside of his character. So as he's coming to rescue us, he's like, oh, the law. I've got to go past judgment. And he goes to past judgment and he thinks, but I love them. I want to give them grace. And he's in his pickle. Do we see the holy pickle of God? The holy pick, pickle problem of God? You're going to love this. The holy pickle problem of God was solved by a propitiation. 
Yeah, I'm like Dr. Seuss incarnate. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> the holy pickle problem of God was solved by a propitiation. That means payment. This is the wondrous moment of the cross. And why every Sunday, for as long as I live, as long as Alex will give me a microphone or ever let me preach, we will talk about the cross. It is the very hinge point of world history. All things revolve around this man on this cross. Not other people on other crosses, but this man at this time, Jesus, on the cross. Because he solved the holy pickle problem. And this is how. Jesus, being without sin, didn't owe anything. These are legal terms. Because he hadn't broken the law, he had no fine to pay. He said, I will take my payment and pay it on behalf of the people that believe in me. Two things that were accomplished at the same time when he was solving the holy pickle problem through propitiation on the cross. The first is the wrath of God was satisfied. The payment was made to him. His justice was quenched. Do we see that? God paid our debt, as the Bible would say. We were in debt to him. We were in sin to him. We'd fallen from the standard. We owed a fine called eternity that we could not pay. We can't pay perfection. So Jesus did it for us. He, he subsequently paid for our penalty on the cross. He, he justified us. At the same exact time that he is justifying us on the cross, in grace, he is pouring out his love. Why? Because we didn't have to die. He said as the Father, no, I'll stand in their place. Let me, let me handle their justice. Let me take on their penalty and let me declare my love to my children. <laughs> At the very same time, sorry. The cross is this intermingling moment where the holy pickle problem of God was solved for us on the cross. Okay, I promise I'm not going to say holy pickle problem anymore. Not because I probably shouldn't. I just don't think I can anymore. So does that, are, are we concluded then? Suffice it to say, can we say that it's settled? Salvation comes by those who believe in Jesus by faith through grace. And this is, if you go to the next slide. Next slide, very good. This is the, this is the solution to the grace and law paradox. That we receive justification, salvation, by faith through grace. This is what Paul has been discussing to the Roman church from chapters 3 through 4. And he's been doing this because he has been uh, proclaiming to this church what he is calling my gospel. Essentially what he's been saying to the church is this. You believe in God but you don't believe in God rightly. And what I'm going to do is share to you what I believe about God to be true. I'm going to show you the gospel, the correct gospel, what Paul refers to as my gospel. And in doing so, he just starts to declare this wonderful essay, this excerpt of what theology in Christ is like. Of the gospel, the good news for you and me. And he starts with faith. And he does it really well because in, in chapters 3 and 4, he, he uses this Roman church who's predominantly Jewish in their upbringing, he uses their own history to explain to them what God has been doing. He uses the words of David, saying it's by faith that we are the wretched man of God and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. This is the words of David in the Psalms. And then in chapter 4, he discusses what we call the father of faith in the scripture, Abraham. And he goes through the life of Abraham, showing the Jews that know this story well, how in fact God worked through Abraham because he had faith. If you're a Christian in the room today, and that you believe there is no work to be done for salvation, salvation comes by faith. The very next question you would begin to ask, or maybe have in your past, for some of you youngsters in the room, maybe you haven't asked this question yet, but I'm sure you will, would be something like this. If I believe that I'm saved by faith, 
How secure is my faith? How saved am I? Because the law, the law seems like a very like structural concept. 35 mile an hour speed limit means 35. If you go 36, you are breaking the law. That's just, it's like black and white. That's how it works. Now, faith, faith seems to be more fluid. Harder to define. Less rigid in its design and concept. And so, us, the believer, would ask, how secure are we in faith? This seems kind of fluid. Or maybe you feel secure, but you think, maybe, could I lose my faith? I gained it by faith, but could I lose it through something else? I can't gain salvation through works, but can I lose salvation through works? There are doctrine out there today amongst churches that believe that very thing. I will tip my hand, so to speak, and tell you that this church is not one of them. But you may be wondering that. And lastly, the question may be, I, I know that I'm supposed to believe that I'm saved by faith, and I do, but there's times when I just doubt I think to myself, if I'm really saved, why the heck do I keep doing these sins? Why do I act the way I act? Am I, in fact, saved? The church in Rome was preparing to ask these very questions, and Paul predicts these uh, predicaments. Did you see? <laughs> Told first service I should be a rapper. That's pretty good. He predicts these predicaments and presses forth a solution to their problem before they ask. And he does so in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We will get to those right now. Does that make sense so far? Are we good on the concept of law and grace? Good. I don't want to move forward without knowing this. Are we good on the concept of the holy pickle problem being solved by propitiation in Jesus? Ooh, that was smooth. Do we understand that? Okay. By salvation on the cross. Are we good from the concept of the concept that we are saved by faith alone, not by works? Listen to me, church. There's nothing you can do. These following scriptures assume that we are all agreed on that spot. And if you are not, going forward would be like going on a journey blind. It's not helpful. We must first be solid in these things of theology before we move to the next things. Good. <clears throat> then I won't ha uh, beat that horse down anymore. Oh. Okay, would you be praying for my throat? Thank you. Let's read these scriptures. We'll start in chapter 5 of the book of Romans, verses 1 through 5. And the scripture says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul masterfully takes these concerns, these doubts to the reading believer. I must confess, I at times in my faith have had similar doubts. And I teach the gospel for a living. If you're in the room and you've wondered about the security of your salvation, the first thing you need to know is that you're not alone. And the second thing you need to know is that the answer is in the Word. It's right here in front of you. Paul takes the fluid concept of faith, of the salvation of faith, and he provides structure to it. The picture here is if I told Kevin to catch some water in his hand and I threw him a pail of water, that would be a tough thing to grasp, wouldn't it? It feels like it could fall through your fingers at any moment. That's how sometimes we feel about faith. But if I, if I took the same water and I froze it in an ice cube and I tossed the ice cube to you, it wouldn't be easy to catch, but far easier than the bale of water. This is my hope today. 
I said, I don't think I'm going to define faith for you perfectly. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to solve the issue of salvation today in this church. But I do believe that we will be able to have something to catch, to grasp, to hold on to. Something of rigidity and solidarity. <clears throat> Paul masterfully provides a measuring stick for this fluid concept of faith. He provides six points, six pieces of evidence that will allow you to make a case affirming your own faith. The six points from this scripture are these. You can go to the next slide. Very good. The six statutes of salvation. The first, absolute acquittal. The second, trusted treaty. Free favor. Continual confidence. Extravagant affection. And a helpful hand. The picture here is this. If you were to come to me for counseling ministry, and you were to say, I'm struggling with the solidarity or the, 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 the security of my salvation in faith, I would say, very good. Many have done the same. And you would say to me, I just don't feel supported. I, I don't know how, how much I can lean on, how much weight I can press into this concept of faith. I would say to you, very good, let's add some more things to help you. And you would say, what are those things? I would say, what if I acquitted you from your sin? What if I gave you a legal deed that says you have been acquitted from your crime in a courtroom of God? The second thing I'll give you is a trusted treaty, a treaty, a peace treaty between you and God, declaring that you are no longer at war with one another. The third thing I will give you is, a, is, is free favor. What I've, I've changed the title of that to a favor fort. I'm going to put you in a fortress where only good things happen to you, where you are cared for. The fourth thing I'm going to provide for you is this continual confidence. You will constantly be reassured in your faith leading to salvation. The fifth thing I'm going to give you is an extravagant affection. I am going to cheer you on to pour out, to give of my own. I'm going to help you constantly in this concept of faith. And the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to provide somebody that will walk with you every day for the rest of your life through this faith and salvation. Now, if I said, if I could offer those things, which I can't, don't come to me looking for them. The word can, but I cannot. If I said to you, these are the things I would offer, wouldn't that provide some support in the security of your faith and salvation? This is what Paul offers to the church in Rome and to you and I now. The six statutes of salvation. We'll find all of these in the Word, and we'll start right now. The first is the absolute acquittal. You can go to the next slide. <clears throat> or justification. If you read in Romans uh, 5 verse 1, it says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith. The therefore, Pastor Johnny is kind of a father figure to me, and I remember one of the first sermons he ever preached. He said, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? I thought that was so awesome. <laughs> kind of molded the way I want to preach forevermore. So the question remains, what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is a, it's prima facie, which means on its face. It's Paul is saying, because of the faith of Abraham, leading to the blessing of Abraham and the nation, the promise of God, right? The story of Abraham, do we know that? From chapter 4. If this is true, then this is true. This, therefore, this. And here's the claim that he makes. Therefore, having been... Having been in the Greek is what is, is, is called the erost tense. It's not a tense we have in English, like present tense, past tense in the English language. The tense is best explained in the English language like this, <clears throat> the eros tense in Greek. Something was declared at a moment in time, and it forever made the rest of time different. Does that make sense? It says, we therefore having been justified. We are justified because of what Jesus did on the cross. We are not currently being justified, for those of us who believe by faith. You're not being justified today. You were justified forevermore. It's something declared now, then. <laughs> Does that make sense? Hard to use English words to describe an abstract thought. Are we clear on that? It's a, it's a revolutionary truth, so we have to get it. I'm willing to slow down. 
having been justified, justified is literally the term acquitted. You are acquitted from your crime. Listen to me, church. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are acquitted from your sin. You're acquitted. Meaning you go to the courtroom, you stand with your case, you have been found guilty, and the Lord says, halt, you're acquitted from your case. Now here's the concept in the believing church that we do today. We leave the church because we're acquitted, and we go back to the courtroom, you know, the next day. We leave the courtroom because we're acquitted. We go back the next day with like an apple or something, and we go to the judge and we say, hey, that acquittal yesterday was pretty nice. You think I could get that same acquittal today? As my mom would say, that is stupid. Okay? Hey, stupid. That's what she used to say to me. That was like, I thought that was my name when I was a kid. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> we, can't, we can't be more justified or more acquitted than we already are. This is an eros tense of the word. The concept that you believe you are a sinner is actually theologically false. I'm not trying to encourage you in that. That's what the Bible says. You who believe in faith are no longer sinners. You're not. The old man has passed away, the first Adam that we were in, and behold, the new has come, resurrected in Jesus. I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner. Well, no, you're not. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. You've been acquitted of your crime. You have been justified. Obviously, all of this is by faith. <clears throat> Justification establishes a new relationship with you and God. If this is a new relationship, a relationship of acquittal, a relationship of justification, what then was the old relationship like? Brings us to our second point, the trusted treaty. The scripture says this, we have peace with God, we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> peace is not a feeling. Is that what he's talking about here? He's literally talking about a treaty. Like two countries that come to peace and sign a treaty together. You need to know that before you were saved, you were at war with God. God was your enemy. Scripture says that. You were fighting God in your sin. You also need to know, and this doesn't sell as easily, people get mad at me for this, God was at war with you. If you're not a believer, he still is. You are his enemy. He is powerful, and he is after you. <laughs> because you have declared war against the holiness of his behavior. Now we talked about the justice of God. Not only does he behave rightly, but he responds rightly to injustice. He's going to hand out due punishment. But when we come to him by faith and we are saved, not only do we get justification in acquittal, he, offer, he also offers us a peace treaty. We are at peace with God. This is an objective peace, meaning it is, it is, it is not emotional. But just like subjective peace does, when we are brought to objective peace... We sign a treaty. What happens to our subjective emotion? We become, we get the feeling of peace as well. Do we see that? When you are given a peace treaty and you're on the brink of war, let's say uh, perhaps that we need to sign a peace treaty with Russia. If we were to sign a peace treaty with Russia, it would be an objective peace. It wouldn't, the paper doesn't have any emotions or feeling. It's just a, a decree of law. It is a statement of peace. But because of that objective peace, what then do we get to have security in? Subjective peace. The peace that you feel is an important feeling. It is not the feeling. It doesn't determine your salvation. It's an indication of your salvation by faith through Jesus. Peace doesn't save you. Peace is a byproduct of the treaty you have signed with God. And that treaty is trusted. Why? Because God cannot break his law. What he decrees, he must follow. God cannot lie. Just a few statements here. <clears throat> God did not, God did on the cross, what God did on the cross changed our relationship status forever. 
He did this on purpose, claiming throughout the scripture, peace I give to you. This was his intention. He came to this world not to bring war like the Jews thought, but to bring peace. I have come to bring peace to you. Not a feeling, an offering. How gracious is he? The one who controls the lightning, the one who, uh, uh, you know, designed gravity, the one who could rip us to shreds, disintegrate us, sneeze, and we would all be obliterated. The one who has ultimate power says, before I destroy all you people, I want to provide peace. (laughs) Would you take this offering? And those by faith have received that very thing. Jesus is peace. We get that from Ephesians 2.14. So, so far we know that Jesus is the law. God is law. He is grace. He is our justification, right? Because he is the court. And he is also peace. Ephesians 2 says this, And he made peace with God on our behalf on the cross by law, satisfying his judgment so we could have subjective peace in our lives. That's an an addition on my part. Uh, The treaty brings relief, but it also brings comfort as a secondary clause. The third, the favor fort. This is uh, Romans 5. Verse 2, the first part of it. Through whom we have obtained our introduction, that's a wonderful word, by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word introduction, probably 80% of my time studying this week for this sermon has been over that word right there. It's a, it's a marvelous word. Introduction, you should underline it, it means access. Maybe a version of yours says Access. We have gained access to God. That is like way cooler than I'm making it sound, I think. We have gained access to God. To the Jews who are hearing this in the book of Romans, this is not something that is understood by them. Their whole history is about denial of access. Remember in the Old Testament when Moses was on the mountain and the, the Lord was covered by a cloud? And he says, don't let these people come up the mountain and break through this cloud because they will die. Furthermore, in the temple, when the temple, the tabernacle first and then the temple, when it is erected, do you remember the levels? The first level was the outer court for the Gentiles. Then it was for the people. Then it was for the women. Then it was for the men. Then it was for the priests. And then the innermost court, the Holy of Holies, was for the high priest once a year. And trust me, he wasn't pumped to have to go in. They used to line his garment with bells. And he would go in, make his offering to the Lord, which is the dwelling place of God, once a year in the tabernacle. And they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he was in the presence of God and he died, that no one could go else could go in because they would die too. Talk about a pickle problem. They would pull him out with a rope. Their entire history is about, about a veil between them and God. Now picture this, through whom we also have obtained, currently hold, our introduction, our access, by faith into this grace which we stand. God is grace. In Matthew 17, Matthew 27, the, the veil is said to be torn. When Jesus is on the cross, he says it is finished. The veil in the temple is torn from the top down. The very thing that separated man from God, the veil that denied access, was gained to them by what? Two things happened on the cross. Satisfaction of the law, and the pouring out of grace. Gave you and I access to God. No veil needed. (laughs) Isn't that a wonderful thing? Yeah, I would clap if I were you. We have obtained access to God. Ephesians 2.18 says this, Through whom, through him, we have obtained our access in one spirit to the Father. Same uh, set of scripture, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Paul is discussing Jesus. By the way, Paul uses this word introduction or access like 50 sometimes in his epistles. And I've spent most of the weekend studying it. it, it I, I want to name my son access. I mean, this, this, the word is amazing. Uh, that, it's not going to go over well with mama, but... In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. I get to go to the throne of God with confidence. I don't go to my bank confidently. 
like, I don't have confidence in very much stuff. You know what I mean? I, I, it just, there's just so much that can go wrong. Now you're going to stand in front of the, the throne of God and I can be confident because I have gained access to him. Access to grace where we stand. We, the, term, the, the picture here is a fort. Okay, we're standing inside of something. A fort doesn't help you if you're outside of it. The concept of like holding on to a fort and arrows are coming down. You're like, help me please, Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't work. You have to be in the fort in order to obtain the benefits of the fort. The scripture says that we are standing in. That word stand in literally means abide. We are connected like a vine and a tree. One is the other and the other is one. The concept is this, that in faith, the Bible says that you are in Jesus. He is your covering. He is your shelter. He is your protection. He is your fort. But watch this. You, he is also in you. The very concept of God, who he is, the fullness of him is in us. We are standing in this unmerited favor constantly in which we stand. We abide. We cannot leave from because it is with us wherever we go. We abide in it. I'm leaving God. Well, it's in you. Good luck. <laughs> I want God out of me. No problem. He, you're in him, so that's tough. We are, we are one within the other. This is where we get the question, well, God, or Beck, not God, not God, Beck, sorry. Well, Beck, what happens if I sin? I believe that I'm saved by faith, that justification comes by faith, not by works, but what if, can I work my way out of salvation. This is where we get to Romans 5.20. If you'll just turn, uh, you might not even have to turn, to the next set of scripture. Romans 5.20 says this. Paul proclaims, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. When, if you are standing in the fort of favor, I'm in it. Did you see my jump? That was good. If I'm in the fort of favor and I sin, instantly grace abounds. It's favor over me. It cleanses me. It's constantly working on me because I am in a place where sin cannot remain. So before it even has its chance to take hold, it is washed free. We are in this, like, Gore-Tex of all Gore-Tex protection. And that if, when the, when the Lord, try, or the enemy tries to throw these things at us, they just run off instantly because we are within this fort of grace. The Lord is the law. The Lord is grace. <clears throat> I put this statement in here. If I could lose my salvation, I would. Like, if it were up to me to hold it, man, it would be a bummer. I spilled my coffee back there like 10 seconds ago. I can't even hold something for a minute. I fumble constantly. I trip. I stumble. I sin. I break the law. But God, who is gracious in his fullness, right? It says that he has his riches. He pours them out upon us. He is constantly keeping us to the level of righteousness that he obtained. Maybe you could say it like this. God can't fumble. <laughs> He's not going to like, oops. <laughs> Furthermore, if he is a perfect judge, we declared that in this, this morning, right? His judgment is perfect. He has made a judgment of acquittal. If he makes that judgment of acquittal, and then we sin and he has to go back on that judgment, was the judgment perfect? He can't do something that's not perfect. We cannot lose our salvation. We're running out of time here. I got to hurry. The uh, next one is this, hope. We exalt in hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Next slide. Um, tr uh, I'm sorry, I forgot where I, uh, uh, And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not dis. A point. Hope is mentioned three times in this scripture. Hope is not a wish. It's not like, I hope it rains tomorrow. The concept of the word hope in the scripture is a confidence. 
When we think like, I hope I win the lottery, crossing our fingers, that's actually a, a twisting of the word hope. That's not how it's mentioned or designed. Hope is a confidence of what is to come. It is an expectation. It is looking out the window to, for the UPS man because you know something is coming. That is a hope. It says we exalt. Okay, we, we exalt. We lift up. Uh, a little different from the word exalt. But exalt is a celebration. It is a, 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 the pinnacle of joy. And the picture here for your mind is when somebody kicks the winning goal in a soccer game and they lift them up on the shoulders and they're, they're celebrating him Okay? They're, 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 they're in joy. They're in confidence. Right? The game is over. They have won. It says that we exult. We celebrate. We lift up all the more. <clears throat> we, we boast in. We have a confident joy of our, our uh, perseverance in Christ. This is a line here that I just wrote down. We are standing in eternal grace. That's our favorite fort continually celebrating our hope. Our hope is our perseverance in Christ, meaning our, 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 our glorification in heaven someday. We can constantly be in celebration. I can always be in hope because of two reasons. One, I know that grace removes all my sin. I ain't got nothing to worry about. And two, he's a God that can't break his promise, and he has said that we will be glorified in heaven by faith through grace. So I am in celebration all the time. The life of the Christian should be the weirdest, happiest people you've ever met. Not because I want you to like, because I said so, but because the Word of God declares that to us. <clears throat> we can even exalt, the first one is the hope of glory. The second one, we can even exalt when we are facing trials. Because before we feared the consequences of death, before you were in the fort of grace, before you had the treaty of hope, before you had justification, before you had this con or the treaty of, of peace, before you had this understanding of your salvation, you had to fear what was coming. Death, judgment, payment, wrongdoing. The law was over you. The Bible says that we were under the law. Now it says we are under grace, which is a relationship to the law, but not just the law. And under grace we celebrate. Because no longer do we fear death. In fact, the worst thing that the world can throw at us is glorification in heaven sooner. If that's as bad as it gets, we can celebrate. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> so the first is the hope of eternal glory. The second is we no longer have a fear of death. This is what the scripture about hope is talking about. And the third hope is this. Trials don't come to break faith, but to prove it. The woe of God. The concept is, maybe you're praying for somebody that has cancer. And you're believing by faith. And you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. I have some doubts, but I'm believing by faith. I'm trusting that God is who he said he was and did what he said he did. And then we get to the other side of a trial, a tribulation, right? We persevere. And what happens? It works. Whoa. Not only do you realize that God is who he said he is, but you actually believe in the God who says he is who he says he is. Our confidence increases because we have a hope. It's it's we face a trial, we persevere, we get to the other side of that trial. And when we get to the other side of that trial, it says that it increases, it proves our character. Character means you act who you are. Well, if the sinner is dead in you, that Jesus is alive in you, the character that you have is the character of God. Right? If you believe by faith, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start acting like God. <laughs> proven character. And your character will be proven. And what will it happen? Increase your hope all the more. Holy cow! Not... <laughs> Shouldn't have said that in church. Anyway, not only do I have salvation and a hope of eternal glory in the future someday, that's reason enough to celebrate. But in fact, here today, what I believe in is true where I stand. We have a hope that perseveres, that proves character, and increases our hope all the more. That's why older Christians are happier. They're just not worried about all the gunk. Because I have seen my God do miraculous things. And I have enough to testify in. That's why we should have our hope in Jesus. Finally, it says this. And hope does not disappoint. Because God cannot break his promise. 
The fifth one, we're almost done, guys. Extravagant affection. Uh, Romans 5, uh, 5b says this, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Love of God is a possessive term, okay? We have it. I'm holding it right now. The love of God has been poured out, lavished upon. We are drenched in his love. Now, this is a misunderstanding in the church today, and we need to rectify this right now. There are parts of you that believe because the word says gifts are given in part, that we prophesy in part, that we interpret in part, that some people are anointed and some people are less anointed or whatever, that God in some way like divvies out his love to people. False. Poor theology. The fact of the scripture is, is that the entirety of the love of God has been given to you. And the entirety of the love of God has been given to me. And you think to yourself, how is that possible? If I have all of it, he has all of it. It's like the love paradox. Think of it like this. If you're thinking about pie, and you take a slice of pie, that's one less slice of pie for me. God says, let there be more pie. And there just is more. <laughs> Does that make sense? You get all the pie you can maintain because he has more than enough. The eternal riches of his glory, his love has been poured out in total upon you. You are lavished in it. There's some scripture here that helps us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16. I got to hustle. Whew. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this. Uh, don't turn there if you, don't, if you don't want to. That's not a problem. I'll read it to you. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart, but through our outer man, though our, sorry, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. How does that scripture relate to this one? Well, let me show you. Because the love of God has been poured out within our heart. That word heart there is the Greek term for deepest man or, or the, the, the truest part of who you are. The inner man, as Paul refers to it. It says that the love of God renews us every day in our inner man. We sin grace. Instantly, we're washed by grace yet again. The love of God is constantly being poured out upon us. The picture here that helps us is the love of God is a waterfall and your life is lived under that waterfall. You sin, and then pfft, instantly it just gets washed away. You sin again, instantly. Just, you're just standing in the weight of the love of God constantly being lavished upon you. It's more than you can maintain. It's more powerful than your sin power could overcome. Veronica said this to me in the back, that I am not powerful enough to make God fumble. My sin is not powerful enough to overcome his love. We have, a spin, we have a sin, right? It's like spit coming out of our mouth. And he has a waterfall. It just gets taken care of instantly. The size is insurmountable. Man, the recording of these sound effects is going to be killer. Alex is going to be like, Beck, just stop. Ephesians 3.16, continuing on with love. <clears throat> that he would grant you, he, God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. The love of God is strengthening. It's edifying to us. Because the love of God has been poured out, we can have hope. And because we can have hope, we can have this standing in grace. And when we stand in grace, we know we have a treaty with God. And when we have a treaty, treaty with God, I have proof of my justification in salvation. And we see how that works. Last one. We can go ahead and bring the worship team up here. The worship duet. Is it a duo or duet? Duet? Duo? I don't know. It's a masculine term. And just to top it all off, Paul says, not only have you been given justification, not only have you been given peace, not only have you been given grace, not only have you been given hope, not only have you been given love, but just to top it all off, I will give you the very Spirit of God. He says, let me just read it for you. Through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us? The oh, by the way of God. The very spirit of the Trinity, the writer of the law, the helper, the, the spirit of the creation, the comforter, the intercessor, the spirit of Jesus has been given to you. Though you may not have enough evidence now of the security of your salvation, 
If you're questioning anything, he gives you a guide, a helper, a teacher called the Spirit who is with you wherever you go. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You may have doubt in your salvation, but the evidence is stacked against you that you are so secure in the love and peace and grace and hope and, and uh, Spirit of God. Let's just stand to our feet real quick. We're going to bring the worship team up. And, or pardon me, the offering team up. I'm going to pray for the offering. We're going to uh, go through the offering and sing a song of worship. And then I'm going to come back for our closing. Lord, we're thankful for your word. And how in your word it says that we should give. Not be stealers. Not be keepers. Not be hiders. Not be gatherers, but to be givers, abundantly giving, just as you gave. And so, Lord, I just thank you for your truth this morning. And I ask that you bless those that give to you. God, I pray that you multiply for them. And that you multiply the offering that was given to your church this morning. That we may multiply the grace set upon the city. There are hurting people in this world. There are things that need to be done in this city. One of the engines you've created, Lord, is the financial engine. And we understand that and we accept that and we appreciate that. You're a God that supplies. We ask for you to supply the engine so that your work may be done in the earth. Blessings to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name. service was barrier and boundary um, but I, I'm, I'm gonna trust the Lord this morning I I don't I get the sense that it's something else today for this service but I don't have anything <laughs> oh there we go Jesus is coming up here giving honor to God and all his blessings and all his people and the works right now that those of us that are feeling too tired to kind of muscle to the front of the crowd to get those blessings to go ahead and just reach out for the hem of his garment he is there for us it doesn't take all everything when you're feeling not worthy or not read enough or, or, or not verbal enough in the word the Lord said that's okay you just reach out for the hem of his garment and all those blessings that he has for those other people that you look around and see those blessings are for you so go ahead and take your blessings don't look for your blessings the way they come from somebody else the Lord has them and last week the Lord was talking about the Lord is giving a word about those people that's feeling like they're down on that asphalt that they're down crawling and yeah. talking about you know feeling that gravel getting to their knees the Lord said quit looking around look up look to me because at the end of that 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 driveway the end of that parking lot there's a big red brand new shiny cadillac there with the keys in it full of gas with your name on it so lord said go ahead and be encouraged don't think about where you are quit concentrating and looking down on where it is look up to him and that's where your blessings are going to flow from that's very good very good indeed truth is we're going to be glorified you're poor or broken or frustrated or confused. You're all of those things, but you're also going to be glorified. You may be broken down or hurt, but there is a truth that is greater than your situation. So for those of you that just need to receive that this morning, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to pray, Lord, Lord, in faith right now, all over the room, people would be reaching out for the hem of your garment. 
that your, your holiness is not far away. Your spirit is not way off in the heavens, that it is here intimately right now with us. And I pray for those that just need to receive that power, Lord, that accept that they are worthy enough through justification to be, to be numbered right next to you, to be at the right hand of the Father, that you're okay to be close, you're okay to touch, you're okay to draw near of, you're okay to approach. You've granted us access. But I just pray for the heart all over, or the hearts all over the room that may need that prayer, that they would receive it like a gift. Now pick it apart, not question it, but just receive. Pray these things and believe these things because of your son on the cross and the hinge point of all of history where all things were rectified. And we believe in you by faith through grace, Lord. We're so blessed to be yours. I pray for this week, God, as those are celebrating their memorial day. Thank you for this country and, and those that died so that we could be in freedom today. But Lord, nobody should be celebrated more than you in your death. Because you gave us the ultimate freedom, the ultimate liberty to be free in you. We thank you for this truth. Bless our week. In Jesus' name, amen. At the conclusion of the song, you guys are free to go. I hope you worship. Everybody said, Amen. You guys are free.